Housing and urban development is one of something like 30 agencies that have a hand in disaster recovery. In trying to avoid duplicating benefits to disaster victims, in 2017, HUD started work on a data portal, a place where grantees would load information on benefits they've already received so HUD could see it. HUD's Office of Inspector General has found the data portal is only partially completed. This six years later, the OIG also found questions about whether the portal is a high enough priority for HUD's technology staff. Joining me in studio, to sort it all out, HUD Inspector General Ray Oliver Davis. Ms. Davis, good to have you in. Hi, Tom. Good morning. Thanks for having me. And I was trying to study the wiring of all of this disaster recovery data reporting, and I had trouble tracing it. So maybe just give us a little bit of the context of where this data portal that HUD is building fits into this whole picture. Sure, I'll do my best with that because it is complex. I think you're right to point that out. Well, first and foremost, you know, you and I have talked about several times, I think, the, the vast mission of HUD. And I don't know, maybe before this report, some people didn't even recognize that HUD played a part in disaster recovery, but they do. You pointed out the 30 agencies, somewhat 30 federal agencies that contribute to this. Of course, FEMA being the biggest, the largest, SBA, people probably recognize they have a role as well. And then HUD comes down the line with what we call unmet need, and now also mitigation. So how can we mitigate against disasters in the future? In terms of this tool and reporting, this is a data warehouse that grantees theoretically already have access to because they're already using it to report their data into HUD. So HUD keeps track of them that way. The what, grantees are not necessarily the disaster victims, but housing correct. authorities or... Correct. Okay, that's that's a that's a very good thing to point out. First of all, the way HUD administers this funding is it's given to HUD through a supplemental appropriation from Congress, and then it's passed to grantees. It's a block grant, which means that the grantee is typically a municipality, a state, that type of entity. And then it's decentralized because to carry out the disaster recovery and relief, they have to further give money to other sub-grantees, recipients, and even individuals. Those being the beneficiaries, as you said. Yes, certainly. Right. So then the purpose of this data portal then is to help everyone make sure that people get what they have coming under the law, but not double benefits or duplicative benefits. Sure. We call it duplication of benefits. We're looking to see if an individual or an entity has gotten money beyond what their need is, a windfall, so to speak. And the grantees are tasked with that. That's set out in statute. It's set out in their grant agreements with the department. So on top of grantees safeguarding resources, making sure they have infrastructure, looking at the eligibility of beneficiaries. They also have to make sure that they are guarding the funds in a way that they go to the intended person and one entity or one individual doesn't get more than they're supposed to get. Yes, that's right. All right. So what is HUD supposed to be doing here? What's the project you actually looked at? So this is a plan to automate the transfer of data from FEMA, which is the largest entity that participates in disaster recovery, and they usually go first, and to get that data to the grantees, you know, get the most current data, get the most real-time data, to ensure that this is not an overly burdensome process. You know, you look at the position a grantee's in, this is a time of crisis. We're also dealing with a remarkable amount of money. I mean, between 2015 and 2021, HUD got $47 billion between 2015 and 2021. 2021. And now here we are, 2023, we're looking at $100 billion that goes to HUD alone. Right. And all you have to do is look at what's happening in Hawaii to get some sense of how this process works and how expensive it can be. It is. And, you know, thinking about where people are in the moment when this funding is getting out, think about what they're dealing with. We saw that in, frankly, the pandemic with the CARES Act funding. You know, grantees got a tremendous amount of money all of a sudden that maybe they didn't have the capacity to oversee. But yes, there's a lot going on. It's a critical time for beneficiaries and grantees. At the same time, they're trying to do the best they can to build their infrastructure and safeguard the funds against 
improper payments, fraud, and any kind of improper duplication of benefits. Yes. All right. So this was started in 2017, and Congress directed HUD to build this automated portal and to keep it a priority. Mm -hmm. What is the status of it, actually? Well, as you point out, it was conceptualized in 2017 and tested. I am waiting for my most recent update on this. We did anticipate that there might be completion in June of this year, but that's come and gone. The big thing that we're waiting on is for HUD to award the contract. When they first started down this path with this plan, they were planning on leveraging an existing contract vehicle that they had with GSA. They learned that contract vehicle was going to terminate, was going to lapse before the completion of the project. So now they've had to award a brand new contract. So that's really what we're waiting for here. We're speaking with Ray Oliver Davis. She's Inspector General of Housing and Urban Development. Well, if the project was started in 2017, what do they do between now and then if there's no contract? That's a good question. So a number of things are, are, are at play there. First, you know, we had some staff turnover, both at HUD, people who were focused on this project. We had staff turnover at the contract level. The contract itself, you know, this idea of leveraging the existing contract and now looking for a new one, that's something that we see. You know, we talk a lot about how procurement and contract management is really a top management challenge for HUD. It's something we hear from the principals. It's something we reflect every year in our reports. The stakeholders need to get aligned, whether that's the Office of CIO or CPD on the prioritization of this project. I think that's happened. We see improvement in those areas within HUD in terms of CIO, CFO, what we call kind of our support components with the program areas and prioritization. They have dashboards now where they track projects. So they're making headway there. But I do think that was at play here. We had also, um, frankly, a misunderstanding about congressional approval. I mean, HUD is set up in a way where, like every organization, I mean, Congress holds the purse strings. HUD has to go to Congress for authority, for approval, once they have a plan in place. And there was a slight misunderstanding in the beginning. They thought that this was something that had they had to run past Congress. As it turns out, HUD does have about 10% flexibility in its funding to play with. I'm sure they'd like more. I'm sure Congress uh, likes having the oversight that they do. Anyway, it was with below the threshold. So they didn't have to have the congressional approval, but that did hold things up for a little bit. But I think we're back on track. Well, is HUD's plan still current? Because between 2017 and now, this whole notion of cloud computing has really blown up in the federal government. Maybe the portal should be a cloud facility instead of a mm. server that HUD is operating. I think that'd be a good question for the CIO of HUD. And, <laughs> and if you don't ask it, Tom, maybe I should. Maybe I should ask that question. I don't know. We'll see. You know, we're going to be monitoring well, We can get this. each other in trouble. Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, but we'll be monitoring this to see how effective it is and whether it makes sense from a technology standpoint as well. And your recommendations in the meantime. So the first recommendation we made was more data. Look, this tool is only going to be as effective as the data in it, right? And HUD wants the grantees to have current data. Right now, the plan is uh, set up with only one program at FEMA. Now, it's the largest program, so it's bound to be helpful. You know, to HUD's point, adding data to this tool is going to take time. I mean, I think they said probably two to three years even for one additional data set. And that's because we're dealing with other federal components, legality. We'll have to have legal review from multiple agencies. We're dealing with funding to complete a project like that. So that's something that is somewhat out of their control, but we'd like to see continuous progress. SBA comes to mind, for example. Sure, sure. Yeah, there's certainly the question of whether or not additional data beyond FEMA is appropriate. You know, we've talked to grantees. I think most of the grantees would say this is certainly a good idea. If they can 
have a data warehouse where they can go for one-stop shopping, that'd be fantastic, right? So we'd love to see it come to that. But we have to recognize that some of this is simply out of HUD's control. The other recommendation we made was that they complete their own documentation. They have a project planning policy in-house, HUD does. And IT projects have to go through that policy to ensure that they are looking for risk. You know, things like the contract that we're talking about, they're spotting issues like that along the way. And frankly, it's my understanding that the documents that we're waiting on are going to require an award of the contract first. So that is really the key next step. Yeah. What do they say? Nothing happens till somebody buys something. Yes. <laughs> yes. So Certainly. it'll happen. Certainly. And HUD generally agreed with your recommendations? Yes. They're making progress. We're waiting to hear their actual response on how they're going to accomplish these things. But they appreciated the review, I believe. And I think they, yes, yeah, certainly agreed with that and are making progress in that direction. Yeah. You can only imagine what effectiveness and efficiency would be in place if this project in this system was in place given the disasters in the last 12 months. Oh, absolutely. And look, you know, in terms of ultimately why this is important, controls on the front end are the best thing, right? If you're in the standing in the shoes of a beneficiary, you might down the line be asked to pay back money. You know, talk about a financial drain, talk about an emotional hit after you've been through a disaster. It's much better to prevent these things on the front end. And I think that's what this tool will do. Ray Oliver Davis is the Inspector General of Housing and Urban Development. As always, great to have you in. Thank you so much, Tom. I very much appreciate your interest in our work. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And And I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. 
It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always make sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They're the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this. And I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. (laughs) Um, Describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that, believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came 
do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed, uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things, and that's what has helped me. Uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice that whole approach because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother. You know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.